Well, look, we are uh, we are in uh, we are in this series past the halfway point, moving toward the end. We have one more section after this week uh, of our study that we're calling Culture Makers, which is our way of applying uh, Genesis one through eleven and, and reflecting on what we learned in Genesis one through eleven. And so this week uh, is the second half of our conversation on parenting. And I'll just extend the same disclaimer that I did last week. Parenting is hard, and wanting to be a parent and not being a parent is hard. And sitting through a sermon about parenting when you're not a parent can be hard. Um, And look, uh, what we learn here, in many ways, extends to so many different areas of our lives. And the grace that that we glean from God in parenting is critically important for us. So it's my deep hope that you will not hear what we say this morning as a heavy burden. Or is an unwieldy burden, but that you'll sense its weightiness and you'll give it to Jesus, okay? So let's take a look at this first. We're, we're, we're going to dig back in to where we were last week um, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'm telling you right now, I have the feeling that I'm forgetting something huge. I'm just, I'm going to let it go, okay? But if somebody out there knows it, just tell me, okay? I just have that feeling, you know? You have a, anyway, confessions of a preacher. I'm going to move on. The Bible talks a great deal, right, about the connections that we have to one another. Genesis 3 emphasizes this new reality for God's people. Sin, we know, has happened. The reality fast on the heels of sin with Adam and Eve was God saying that the way things are is not the way they will be. And he specifically says that your children of which all of us who belong to Jesus are one of these children ourselves, your children will be a part of the story, the process that crushes the head of evil. And we know Jesus accomplished that on the cross and that he enlists us as his people to follow in his footsteps. That includes the raising of children. And so last week we said... Our goal is not necessarily to raise promising children, children of envy for everybody else, but to raise children of the promise. And so as we dig into that a little bit more, we want to talk about what is it that creates that culture in our homes? What's the ethic that allows us to raise those kinds of children? Because there's opposition to raising the children that God's calling us to raise. There's opposition in our own heart and the world around us. The opposition we have is we don't like the ethic. At heart, we don't like the ethic that God gives us. The ethic, the obstacle that we have to deal with if we're going to parent our children the way that God is calling us to is this ethic called love thy neighbor. It gets in the way of living life. Love thy neighbor. Be poured out for thy neighbor. It's a real challenge to modern parenting. To be called to love that way. And so what we do often is we create communities of lovelessness. And one thing I want to say as we dig into this, you know, it's, it's, it's heavy on my heart. I was in youth ministry off and on for 15-ish years. And in my experience in working with students, children, teenagers, one of the things that drove them away from church faster than anything else was their sense that it was not a loving community. And 
that the homes in which they grew up in, that were called Christian homes, were not loving homes. So it pushed them away. They fled the church because they couldn't make sense what the church was trying to say about Jesus because there was no love there. So what we're talking about this morning, it it should resonate deeply with those of us who want our kids not only to grow up knowing Jesus, but to grow up worshiping and loving Jesus. Okay? That's the goal. Now, love thy neighbor doesn't just mean the person who is your physical neighbor, you know? Like a physician, you're called to, to serve the person right in front of you, whoever they may be. And as you love your neighbor, it's whoever the Lord puts in front of you. Now, the challenge with that is immediately, you're probably thinking, I can't love everybody because some people are fairly unlovable, or they're mean, or they're unkind to me in some way, or by loving them, I feel like I'd be violating some very important boundaries in my life. And so I want to say that love does not always look the same from person to person. Those of you who are called to love your neighbor, sometimes it may mean telling them a very difficult truth. A truth that's such a hard truth that it wounds you to tell them. That's how you know you're speaking in love to someone. It's when it wounds you to speak. Or it may involve setting up boundaries. Where for a time you don't interact the way you want to. And you pray for them and you hope for the future that God opens the door for that relationship. But there may be a period of time where for their good and for your good, there have to be significant barriers to communication. Love might look like that. That love is what we might call culturally empathy. The ability to feel the needs of other people, to be in their heads and hearts. The kind of love that God is talking about is not always the affectionate, sweet, caring, or it's always caring, but the sweet, affectionate kind of loving that we associate with, with love. It's not always, it doesn't always look like that, but it does always look like the care of the other person. You may have to love people at a distance, but empathy means that your love is never distant. Your love is never uninvolved. So that ethic of needing to love your neighbor, whoever that may be, that is critical to establishing a culture where children are raised up and they become Jesus followers. And it's critical for us as we seek to become Jesus followers too. How often have you talked to somebody who said, yeah, I'm not into that Christianity stuff in part because who can believe Christians? Have you seen their lives? Now, some people are going to say that no matter what, okay? But we ought not to give them ammunition. So let's think about what it looks like to create these kinds of community, all right? Sympathy and empathy, we often confuse them, right? Sympathy is, it's a card, Sympathy is good manners, right? Empathy is a good kind of grief that is involved in the needs of the other person. Lots of people have said that Christian love, it it amounts to thinking of others more than you think of yourself. Not necessarily thinking they're more important or they're more valuable or they're more dignified by God. It's not groveling. But it is being willing to think of them even more than we think of ourselves. It is to be compelled by the needs of others. So what I'm trying to say is that God creates a community, a biblical community, and we just visualized it here through people being welcomed into the life of the church. God weaves together this community through love thy neighbor, empathetic, costly love. And that's the environment in which we have to raise kids if they're going to be children of the promise. In 1965, a child development researcher devised 
a test he called very creatively the ball and blanket test, okay, involving a ball and a blanket. And the job, the, the kind of the, the process of this test was to take an infant and to show them a ball and then to hide the ball under the blanket and to see if the child will look under the blanket for the ball. Sounds rather simple. The goal is to establish at what age infants developed object permanence when they believed that the thing existed, whether they could see it or not, right? The belief was, does the thing exist? If I take it out of their line of sight, does it exist anymore? Object permanence. Now, if you move the object to a different room, do they know that it exists? But let's, let's move beyond infancy. Because I actually think we need to do the object permanence test ourselves. Let's say, does the object exist if the object doesn't immediately agree with your opinions? Does the object still exist if it has a life of its own that doesn't include you? can be a hard reality that the the value, the dignity of a person, it's not related to whether or not they serve your needs or your purposes. Christian community is kind of woven out of this idea that people have intrinsic value and dignity and should be loved whether they fulfill your needs or not. It's hard for Christians to get their minds around the fact that people can be of that kind of dignity even if we profoundly disagree with them. So this is the challenge. How do we create this community of biblical, biblical community where object permanence exists, exists for every human being? They all exist. They all matter whether or not they serve you. Christian community, this is how we'd kind of sum it up. Christian community has to exist without you at the center, without me at the center. We have to train up our children and we have to help them enter a world to bless a world where they are not the center of it. That's how we love kids. In one of my favorite science experiments of all time, I guess we're on science experiment day, spider scientists, okay, which is what I like to call them for my own amusement, spider scientists, uh, they swab spiders in LSD to see what kinds of webs they would weave. What a fantastic What a wonderful experiment to get paid to do, right? And of course, you know, the webs were a disaster. Rather than uh, weave like a centrally weighted web with themselves at the center, you know, they would would, uh, kind of connect their hunting grounds and such in their world. Uh, They were at the middle, you know. They wove like these weird trapezoids. And at some points, like there's just like webs sagging down somewhere that's not connected to anything, you know. And they're kind of like off in a, in a corner listening to Starflyer 59 and being freaked out, you know. The, this is what kind of created their, their world. It became totally different. Their webs were not productive or efficient or well-balanced or non-confrontational, you know. They were influenced by something other than their own self-interest, LSD. But I guess what I'm saying is this. Build your connections in community like a spider on LSD. That's what I'm saying. Absolutely, it's what I'm saying. That's your spiritual uh, point for this morning. Parent your children so that they learn to do the same. The community that you weave, the connections, should not have you at the center. They ought to be all kinds of strange based on the worlds in which you live. Weave your relationships in nonsensical ways. Your children need to see this. They need to see that you have a misshapen web. The way you know that web is biblical is that you aren't in the middle of it. It's funky, right? You have to train them and you have to bind them to the needs of people around them. 
You have to start to weave the web of their relationships in the same way. And what that means is that sometimes other people will not come at proper right angles, you know, to our lives. They won't fit exactly the way we want them to. When you've marked out all your time and space, people have a tendency to bleed into inconvenient times and needs. That's good. If you join a church, if you belong to a church, you'll see those things too. If you had asked me eight years ago, would my web include people who love Dungeons and Dragons? I would have said that would be strange. I wouldn't expect that. Not because it's bad, but because it's not me, right? And they would have probably said the same thing. Would we be connected to this kind of guy? Probably not, right? But somehow we are. This is the way that our web is kind of woven in Christ. Now, as, uh, as kind of social scientists, paleoanthropologists look back on the ancient Near East and the way in which their society ran, in particular the way in which the poor dealt with the rest of the communities and the strata of community, they would call Christianity a weird phenomenon because it had relationships in every strata of the world in which they lived. The ultra-poor and the ultra-rich alike. Cultural changes, differences, socioeconomic differences. That's the weird phenomenon of Christianity. We can't weave community with ourselves in the middle, and we can't weave community, and this is the hard thing. Look, and you might want to, I want you to stick with me. We also can't weave community with our kids at the center. If we're going to raise children of the promise, can't raise them believing that they are the center of their world. The best developmental psychologist will tell you that two things have happened as we've moved to what is at least a child-centered and child-emphasized culture. One, adolescence has extended well beyond what we could have imagined, on into the mid-20s at least. The second thing that's happened is that children have undergone an incredible crisis of conscience because when they feel that they are the center of their worlds, that their parents' happiness relies on their performance, that is a child in crisis. They were not made to bear the weight of our hopes and dreams. They were not made to be the ones that hold the family together. They were not made to be the ones that make sense of everything. They were made to be cared for and parented and invested in. Our children can't bear that weight. They have to have something else at the heart of their lives. And we have to help them learn how to do that. To have something else, someone else at the heart of their lives. So what do we do? Well, let's look at, our biblical, let's look at some biblical advice here. Philippians chapter 2, famous some famous words here. Those of you who are students of the Bible will have heard before. Maybe we can think about them in a, in a bit of a different way. So here's, here's the advice uh, given to us from the Apostle Paul. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what our hope is? Our hope is that our children don't have to be forced to say what they just said. That it will come as no surprise to our kids and to us that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. That he is the one who makes the center hold and not them. This is what it means to have Jesus and our neighbor at the center of the community that we create. This is how empathy is worked out. We tend to look at this like verse 5, we tend to read it and say, oh, try to think like Jesus, right? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? Fully rely on Jesus, whatever. Try and think about the way Jesus thinks. But I actually think it's a much better way to view this as Paul's emphasis to say that what you ought to do is to dwell on this truth. Have this mind, not the mind as it's normally driven by self-centeredness and ambition, but but rather make Jesus your ambition. Make the work of Christ your mind. The thing that you dwell on and think of. When we and our children have that mind, we make culture. The world changes when we recognize that we are not king, but that Jesus is king. Some of you are listening to the Kanye West album, right? You're already, you're thinking about the lyrics and you're thinking, oh, pastor has to talk about Kanye West. I'm just going to say this. Whatever you know about Kanye West and his belief in Jesus, it is incredible The impact that comes from a person who says, I'm not king, Jesus is king. The impact on the kingdom as a whole, not just people listening to his record, but asking questions about Christianity. Because one person says, Jesus is king. When I first became a Christian, the biggest transformation in my life was when I recognized that John 3.30 was in the Bible. And John uh, 3.30, a wonderful Christian witness, a person who said to me, this is my life verse, it should be yours. And his life verse was, he must become greater, I must become less. John 3.30, right? And I recognized I could live in a world where I didn't have to hold it together. You could not believe how at ease that put me as a human being. I was a, I was at one time an actual achiever, right? But I still have that heart in me, okay? The, the sense that I have to achieve, I have to own, I have to do, I have to make things work, I have to hold things together. Here I am in a job where it's very easy to think that the church couldn't possibly function without me, right? And I have to tell myself all the time, he must become greater. I must become less. What a joy to not hold your world together by your strength, your talents, by your charm, by your whatever, by your wit. The children who grow up in our homes have to know that feeling that God can hold the center and they don't need to. Now, Jesus doesn't deny that your family has to receive your protection and sacrificial care, your very life if necessary. But Jesus does strike against the idea that your family is your community, period. End of story. We we tend to think in those terms, but, but Jesus doesn't allow us to. The home is much bigger. 
Jesus made us to flourish in a world where there are no single-family households. We've said that again and again, and we have to keep talking about that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step into it even more, okay? The greatest challenge to the health and the vitality of the church. Think about what you think is the greatest challenge to the church, all right? All kinds of things, whether it's the liberal agenda, you know, or the conservative agenda, you know, whether it's uh, this person or that person that really messes up the church or the person sitting next to you, boy, what a disaster they are. And if they only weren't around, then the church would be much better, right? Hopefully you're not thinking that, but, you know, just imagine. And then, you know, or you think about other things that could be wrong with their church. Well, the church as a whole, is it's this big box corporate model of churches. They just, they just go to, to kind of propagate their own brand, you know. All these things are the reason why the church doesn't work. The church doesn't love people. The church doesn't do any of these other kinds of things. Well, the real danger to me, the most significant danger, the most significant challenge to the mission of the church is the missionless Christian family. The church was made to live on a handed-down spirituality and love for God, where kids learn from their parents in the Old Testament through a crazy process of sanctifying actions of temple worship. They learned, God is God and I'm not. The goal was to create this family of Christ that would grow up and they would constantly know that He must become greater, I must become less. And the world was, was going to be shaken to its core by people who were willing to love wherever God placed them. Because he was at the center. We are challenged. Challenged in that mission. Because it is very easy for other things to become the mission of families. For families to exist without a mission at all. For families to exist simply to survive the world, right? But what God has told us is He said, look, you and your children after you are part of this story. Acts 2.39, which we talked about last week, the promise is for you and for your children after you. For all those who are far off, this is mission that we're engaged in. And whether you have kids or not, your family, whether it's just you or it's seven of you, your family is called to a mission. And that mission is to love God and to love people. Transform a world by that kind of love. Where would the culture making come from? If there's no, if there's, if there are no mission families, I'm not just talking about the ones that we send out to some other country and we say, wow, those people are missionaries. Right? Jesus would say, you people are missionaries. You carry my image. Into all the places where you live and work. And guess what your kids do too? We're all a part of this mission together. Where would be the culture making if there's no Christian community connecting itself in weird trapezoids, you know? High on this idea that they might be able to change the world by bringing the kingdom of God into the world. Where's the, where's the wonderful testimony of the child who tells their classmates about Jesus as a young kid? Where's the testimony of the people like in my own life whose their home became the place where I learned the gospel? I learned two things. One, don't lay on the decorative pillows. And two, there is a God that you must serve who is bigger than you and he loves you. Where are the missional places where people are going to be transformed and see the gospel? 
1852, the, the Reverend William J., who had the greatest church name ever after New City Presbyterian Church, he was from Argyle Chapel. I love that. Uh, he was not from Philadelphia, right? Argyle Chapel. Here's what he says about how we do this. He says, this was his prayer. He said, let not my temporal occupations injure my spiritual concerns or the cares of my life make me neglect the one thing needful. Let not my temporal occupations injure my spiritual concerns or the cares of life make me neglect the one thing needful. I'm not saying we now divide our lives into things that are spiritual and are not spiritual. What I'm saying is everything is spiritual. Everything has spiritual import. Everything is spiritually formative. As we raise kids and as we raise families, we have to recognize that that's what we're doing. And our greatest hope, greater than the fact that our kids would be promising children, is that they would be children of the promise. Here's some practical things you can do, okay? I'm just going to give you a few suggestions here. One, have children participate in worship. We love having kids and, you know, they're singing songs or doing that stuff. They're, they're around the Lord's table later on. Like, we want to start to build that knowledge into them. But here's some other things they can do, right? Um, have them bring, like, their little tithe, right? If you give them, like, a dollar a week for chores, have them bring their little, like, dime to worship. And have them put it in the plate, not because we're hard up for cash right now, okay? But because it will actually help kids recognize. It will help kids recognize that money does not exist to make them safe and well. That there is a bigger God than the God of mammon. We have to do this too. There's a different God at the center of the world. Other things you can do, right? You can listen to songs that we sing on Sundays around the house. If you have Spotify, you can look up my name and you can find our whole song list for New City. You can just play them. Some great music in there. That way they can hear that truth regularly at prayer time. All right, stick with me, those of you without families. You're like wandering now, okay? Don't wander, don't wander. It's okay, it's, it's okay, stick with me. At prayer time, enforce the idea that for your kids, we must pray for one person who's not us or our family, okay? Since our kids were little, and listen, you know us well enough to know we're not perfect parents, or even like in the bell curve part of parents where you'd say, man, I wish I was like them. Okay, we are like messy parents with all kinds of selfish ambition and other stuff we have to deal with. But here's one thing that sometimes occasionally we would get right. We would ask our kids and we were praying. Now tell me, is there anyone in your life right now who is sick or sad? Let's pray for them. Sick or sad? Like it, Generally put that together in their head. Who's sick, who's sad, right? You have to help them to pray for other people. Engage them in placing God and others at the center of their lives. Here's the second practical thing. Parents, plan your second act and talk about it often. And even if you're not a parent yet, plan your second act. And what I mean is, what are you going to do when you graduate from being daily parents? What are you going to do? Are you going to sit around and look at photo albums all day? I hope not. I really hope not, okay? What are you going to do? Now's the time to talk about that. And your, your kids ought to know too. Mom and dad will actually have a life after I'm gone. They're not going to quit living because I'm no longer at home, okay? They're not just going to be waiting for me to call them, right? They have some hope. They have some dream. They have something they want to do. They want to live in another country, you know? They want to... Uh, 
they want to wake up later uh, during the week, you know? Maybe that's the goal, right? They, they want to play with Legos. You know, I don't know. Whatever it is, parents ought to have those dreams, and they ought to make them obvious for their kids. They ought to talk about them regularly. They ought to plan them. What are we going to do? What's our second act? The point is, we don't want our kids to feel like the weight of your hopes and dreams rest on them. Hey, man, you're looking past them, okay? Yeah, yeah, kids. All right, be great. But, you know, we're really looking past you. I'm just kidding. You don't do that. But I'm just saying both things, you know. We want to raise great kids. We want to raise children of the promise. But we also know that our story is not over. And our kids need to know that for their own good. They need to know that. The third thing is this, and this is a tough one, okay? You have to fight for something better than nostalgia. Our economy right now is built on nostalgia. There was an advertising revolution when people in advertising realized they didn't have to come up with advertising anymore because you will advertise for them, right? They found out that you would tell the story of your lives and promote their products at the same time. Why? Because deep inside of us, there's a terror that our best days are behind us or that our best days are the days that we're living. The very best thing you can do for your kids is to not live for nostalgia, but to live for God's future. God help us. God help us if you want to go back more than you want to go forward. That's the test. Because what's forward is not, oh man, look at them in the lion costume. It's so adorable. What's future is look at their healing. Their full healing. Their full humanity. Their redemption in Christ. The removal of every tear. The removal of suffering. That's the future laid out for us. Think about Jesus who did more than any of us could have done, and yet Jesus is not committed to the idea that we must have a shrine to the past. He wants us to have a monument to the present, the church, and signposts to the future, which is even better. We have to live the same way with our own children. Of course we should rejoice in these good things. I'm not saying don't ever take a photo again. Those of you who know my family know that that's never going to happen. Okay? But, but... We must have a heart for the future that keeps us from living in nostalgia. You have to. No matter how good your life is, it can get better, and it will. You have to look toward that future. Uh, in, in kind of dealing with this, one of, my, uh, one of my good friends says it this way. He's talking about his own children. He says, regarding those we love the most, regarding those we love the most, people like me need to remember that we are terrible authors of other people's stories. Only God is able to be the author and perfecter of their unique stories and their unique faith. He, not I, will complete the good work he has begun in them. And he will do this in his way, in his time, and through his chosen process for them. Their lives are in his hands, not mine. It is his sovereign care over the details and chapters of their stories that will get them where they need to be. Notice the future orientation. Notice the trust in the God of the future. Let me tell you, if you are locked in to nostalgia as the greatest thing you can do and experience, 
If you're locked into that, here's the, here's the real heartbreaking thing. Some of you who have had really awful experiences, either as parents or in being parented, if you're locked into nostalgia, if you're locked into, well, what did you do? Pixar, it didn't happen, right? Was it important? Was it good? Was it helpful? Was it an envious life that you lived with your kids? Well, sometimes no. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes those of you who are raising kids or will raise kids, you're going to have days that you're saying, I, will, I would like not to remember this day. But I can guarantee that everything in the future is a day you will want to remember. Everything in the future of God is something you will want to remember and treasure. That has to be a better hope than what you've already accomplished. It has to be. I want to tell you about Jean Vignet. He died earlier this year at the age of 90. Now, if you don't know his name, you're either not a Canadian. Is anybody in here a Canadian? Are you willing to raise your hand? Hey, Canadian, way to go. Uh, have you ever heard of Jean Vignet? I don't know. No, okay, all right. Well, there goes my thesis, right? If you don't know Jean Vignet, you're either not a Canadian or, or uh, you're not a parent of a mentally disabled person, okay? In the early 60s, Jean Vignet, he went uh, on a spiritual journey. He went to visit his spiritual mentor who was a member of the Dominican order and who was serving as a chaplain. He was serving as a chaplain in a hope. I know you know, you know it, don't you? Brian, you know, you know who Jean Vignet is, don't you? Oh, no, you don't either. Okay, never mind. As Catholics, you know, I expect Catholics to know these things. All Catholics should know all Catholics. But anyway, um, it, he's a member of the Dominican order, right? He was serving as a chaplain in a home for the intellectually disabled. So his friend advised him as he's on the spiritual journey. He's like, how, wh- what do I do with my life? And he said, tour local asylums for the disabled. And that day, uh, the, the mentally disabled, the severely physically disabled were kind of pushed off in asylums. So he went and toured them and he, he was haunted by his, by his experience there. He saw these people who were forgotten. They were in barely funded hostels, served by overworked, uninterested caretakers, They were waiting to be injured or to die. He said uh, the most unforgettable part of it were just the screams that he heard in touring these asylums. So as as he kind of reflected on that, and his friend who sent him out there obviously knew what he was doing, his experience awakened in him the belief based heavily in his Christian upbringing that the disabled were a source of life and truth if we are willing to welcome them. The disabled were a source of life and truth. The, the broken, the hurting, were a source of life and truth if we were willing to welcome them. He was weaving the web of his relationships. So he, he bought a house, a dilapidated house in France, and he started the first uh, large house. Uh, Larches French for the ark, the imagery of the ark, Noah's ark. And this is a house where the disabled and the non-disabled would live and work together in community, right? This was the first of what would become 154 communities in more than 38 countries. The severely intellectually and physically disabled started because he had an abiding faith in God, in Jesus, that led him to see that this is how you welcome people. This is how you weave your relationships. Vignet's biblical foundations informed him. Different. He, he said most people would come from a, 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 an altruistic perspective, 
You know, they would they would come as philanthropists. They'd say, well, I'm I've been blessed much. Therefore, I must give to these people. Right. The powerful have a great response. With great power comes great responsibility. Right. This was the this was what he identified as most people's uh, way of interacting with the poor. And what he said was this. Okay, I want you to hear this. This is how you know that empathy is happening. Here's what he said. He said, those who have the power need the disabled and the powerless. Right? And here's what he said about it. He said, they give us gifts. I want you to hear this again. They give us gifts that we couldn't have otherwise. They gave us gifts that we couldn't have otherwise. What Vignet was doing, the other people who observed him said, it was simple. He would... Bathe human beings, dine with them, and offer a reassuring touch. These were the basics of his theology worked out. Vignet caught Jesus when he said that we need little children to understand our place with God. He understood Jesus. When Jesus said that we needed the poor in order to minister to our own poverty, he caught Jesus when Jesus said we need the broken to minister to our own brokenness. We have to weave community in odd angles. Our children have to see us doing that so they can know that Christ and others are at the center of their lives. Two uh, biblical passages, just, I'm just going to read them one after the other as we close here. In Hebrews uh, 4, 14 through 16, we read this, that since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. So, knowing who we have from God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens for us, what do we do? We draw near to the throne of grace. Do you see how that web is constructed? What's at the center? A throne of grace. We draw near, we gather around that. Jesus makes himself central. Why? Because the God that we worship as the center of our lives put our good at the center of his life. Jesus loved thy neighbor. You and I were thy neighbor. Kids have to know that Jesus loved thy neighbor and loved them and put their needs at the center of his life. And we have to do the same. We have to build that kind of community. We have to build that kind of church. Matthew 9 is where I'm going to end. Matthew 9, starting in verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. What did he do? Well, we know he taught in their synagogues and he proclaimed the gospel And he healed every disease and every affliction. Then in verse 36, here's the picture of empathy at work. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. This is a a life and a family on mission, right, being worked out. He saw compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus sees the world and he builds his relationships in the direction of the world. Parenting of the children of the promise means that we teach children to do likewise. See the world. 
Right? See the world. Love the world. Enter the world. What God has done for us, we do. And that we will make culture. We will transform it. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father.